Mission of Mercy. It's the title of this evening's sermon. From Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. Have you ever been invited to a dinner and you're determined to impress everyone with your cooking skills? Armed with a recipe you found online, you confidently march into the kitchen, convinced that you'll create a mouth-watering masterpiece. You follow the instructions, you add the spices, you mix the ingredients, and you eagerly anticipate the final result. Finally, the moment arrives. You triumphantly present your creation to the awaiting guests. But as they take their first bites, you notice a hesitation, followed by polite smiles and forced compliments. Confusion sets in. You take a bite yourself and, oh no, the taste is far from what you expected. Instead of something delicious, you've managed to create a culinary catastrophe. In that moment, you realise the truth. You were so certain about your skills, only to discover that you had it all wrong. Your confidence turns into humility, and the mistaken belief in your culinary prowess turns into a hearty laugh. How often do we find ourselves so sure about something, only to realise that we were mistaken? Maybe we hold strong opinions, convinced that we have all the answers, only to discover that we were misguided or misinformed. It's humbling to question our own self-righteousness and the fallibility of our assumptions. Well, the passage we're dealing with today reveals a similar moment when two disciples, driven by misplaced zeal and self-righteousness, found themselves in need of a gentle course correction from our Saviour. In these few verses, we witness Jesus and his disciples facing a town's rejection that shook their understanding of Jesus' mission and purpose. But before we get into the specifics, let's take a moment to set the stage and understand the journey that led them here. Throughout Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus and his disciples travelling. Some commentators call this portion of this gospel the travel monologue or the travel dialogue. They've been travelling from Galilee to Judea and Samaria. And finally, when we hit Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we see that Jesus now steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he has steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem for the next few chapters. They have been going up till now from village to village, sharing the gospel of repentance from sin and the kingdom of God. Miracles have unfolded, blind eyes have been opened, the deaf hear once more, and the sick have been healed. The crowds have marveled at the authority with which Jesus has been speaking and the compassion with which he touches lives. But during this whirlwind of ministry, something significant happens. A moment on a mountaintop where Jesus' true nature is revealed in all its glory. Imagine Peter, James and John witnessing their beloved Lord Jesus transfigured before their very eyes, his face radiant with heaven's glory, his clothes dazzling white. Moses and Elijah standing alongside him, representing the fulfilment of the law and the prophets. In this moment, 
Jesus' divine, heavenly nature shines forth, leaving his disciples in wonder and awe. But now, with unwavering determination, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem in obedience to his Father's will. But little did the disciples know that this journey would lead to a confrontation that would test their faith and challenge their understanding of Jesus' mission. This is our passage tonight, verses 51 to 56. In the first few verses, we do see Jesus' encounter with rejection as they approach a Samaritan village. The Samaritans had deep-rooted age-old historical animosity towards the Jews, and they refuse to welcome them because Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. More on this a little later, but this rejection doesn't go unnoticed by James and by John. They become fueled by a zeal that they think is righteous, and now they call fire from heaven, or they suggest to, to consume the village. How easy it can be to miss the mark when our passion overflows without the guidance of wisdom. James and John, in their fervour, misunderstand Jesus' purpose. They fail to grasp that Jesus came not to destroy lives but to save them, to offer a message of redemption and reconciliation. In this scene, Jesus gently rebukes them and redirects their hearts towards his true mission. Now, why is this passage relevant to us today? Because it speaks to the essence of our humanity, the tendency, the desire to quickly jump to conclusions, to rely on our limited understanding and to respond in ways that miss the heart of Christ's mission. We too can be driven by misplaced zeal, seeking revenge or judgment rather than having faith in God and extending the grace and love that Jesus exemplified. So, as we get into this passage, let's examine our own hearts. Let's humbly acknowledge the times that we may have misunderstood Jesus' mission and tried to do things our own way and neglected to have faith in God's better way. So, firstly, Jesus' mission. And we see this in verse 51 to 53. Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross reveal the heart of his mission. Salvation, redemption, and reconciliation. Jesus was unwavering in his obedience and his mission to reach Jerusalem. This journey would ultimately lead to his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus knew the suffering he would face, but he remained resolute in fulfilling God's plan of salvation. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's where he was steadfastly heading. No wavering, no detours, not even this Samaritan village could dissuade him. And this phrase, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The word steadfastly set is one word in the Greek. This word means to be fixed, established, strengthened. Imagine a very old oak tree, immovable, even in the fiercest storm. 
Spurgeon once wrote about the steadfast resolve of Jesus in his earthly mission and journey to the cross. His steadfastness was tested by the offers of this world, the persuasions of his friends, the unworthiness of all sinners, the ease at which he could have backed out if he wished to, the taunts of those who mocked him, the agony of the cross. But there is more than this here, and I wouldn't want us to miss an important few words just before this phrase. When the time was come, we read this in verse 51, that he should be received up. Jesus, as he began to follow his heavenly Father and obey him, began to set his face toward Jerusalem. Yes, that's the view we should see. But let's not assume that his primary intention was solely the cross. There are countless passages in scripture that reveal the true significance of this journey, and that is to be raised from the dead. Victory on the other side of the cross. In all four gospel accounts, we find Jesus discussing his journey towards Jerusalem. However, I hope that we can see the perspective was always centered on eternity, on what was to come after his death on the cross. Matthew 16:21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Mark 8:31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Luke 9:22. In this same chapter, we read that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. John 12:23, Jesus says that the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Let's look earlier in this chapter, Luke 9 at verses 28 to 31. This is the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9:28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, or Elijah who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word used here is actually, for decease, is actually the word exodon, where we get the word exodus. It means going out or departure. So the emphasis here is Jesus' exit or departure out of this world. It was not primarily the first six hours when he was dying on the cross, but the emphasis was placed on his going up out of the world, out of the world after death, the resurrection. But in case we don't think this is sufficient for us to think it important, in Luke 9.51, our passage for this evening, we read that when the time was come that he should be received up. This word can also mean ascended. Did Jesus only view his life as destined for the cross? No. 
Throughout the New Testament, we always come across passages that look beyond the crucifixion and focus on what followed, his resurrection. The writers, inspired by God, consistently highlight the fact that he died on the cross and ultimately write that he rose from the dead. This perspective defines the entire mission of Jesus Christ. He saw the cross as simply a step towards the glory thereafter. It was not Calvary that produced in his mind the resurrection, the ascension, and the restoration of communion with his heavenly Father. Instead, it was the glory of the Father, the ascension, and the resurrection that gave him then the glory of the cross on the way towards it. Verse 51, that's the key, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, that when the time was come, that he should be received up. You say, what is this important for? Do we look at the Christian life from eternity's perspective? If you read the life of Thomas, he had the opposite view. When Thomas heard that Lazarus was dead, do you know what Thomas said? He said, let's all go and die with him. But I believe we need a different perspective. We've got to view our life with a different motive. Perhaps we should view it from the perspective that we will be received up. Perhaps we should view things like Jesus did. And he gave us an example. One of the greatest dangers is to succumb to the belief that things are so bad, though they may well be bad, and that we're all going to die, though we may well die. But it is dangerous to have truth without hope. It's dangerous to look at our stand for Christ as just life leading to death. We've got to steadfastly set our face towards Jerusalem because of the inspiration of glory. We're going to be received up out of here. If you and I talk to sinners and saints from a gloomy and hopeless perspective, then we would miss the mark. We arrive at the wrong conclusion if we believe there will be no fruit, no souls won, and no possibility of revival in our hearts and minds. Perhaps if we think the days are evil and we're all going to die, that is the wrong perspective. If Jesus saw his ascension that inspired him to go to Jerusalem, there ought to be something higher than our own deaths that inspire us as a testimony for Christ that draws us there. Behold Christ's face. We cannot look at the face of a sinner and do what is right if we have not beheld the greatness and goodness and glory of God through Jesus Christ. Today, with all the knowledge we possess and accumulate, what truly captivates us? What makes us marvel? What makes us wonder? What is it really, if it's not our ascension and departure, our blessed hope? If it isn't, then we have lost sight of the most significant reason for fighting against the devil. It is the supreme motive for preaching and witnessing and sharing the gospel. Our purpose is rooted in the fact that we are doing this for Jesus. And likewise, Jesus had eternity's perspective in full view, even here as he approached this Samaritan village. And then what happened? 
the village did not receive him. Another meaning for the word here is to welcome. The village made them, Jesus and the disciples, very, very sure that they were not welcome. Now, there were pre-existing historical and ethnic tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. They had religious differences and they had historical conflicts. The Samaritans had distinct worship practices and they rejected Jerusalem as the rightful place of worship. This affected this encounter. The conflict between the Samaritans and Jews traced back to the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. The Assyrians deported many Israelites and brought in foreign settlers who intermarried with Israelites. As a result, there came the Samaritans. They were a mixed ethnic and religious group with their own form of worship centred on Mount Gerizim. So the Jews considered the Samaritans as religiously impure and ethnically compromised. The Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem and they saw it as the sole legitimate place of worship. This tension between the two groups was so palpable that Jews would often take long detours to avoid passing through Samaria when travelling. As we hear of these historical tensions, I wonder whether we might be willing to examine our own hearts. Perhaps there are divisions in our lives. Perhaps there may be people we view with prejudice. But just as Jesus challenged these prejudices with the gospel, we should be breaking down these barriers. The Samaritan's rejection was ethnically driven. But if we look in the mirror... Do prejudices block and hinder us from sharing the gospel? So, Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross reveal the heart of his mission. Salvation, redemption and reconciliation. Now we come to verse 54, the disciples' reaction. And we read, When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? James and John are referred to as sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. Now, in this passage, they now want to call fire down from heaven in retaliation. Their blunt reaction to the Samaritan rejection was zealous, sure. But their zeal was mistaken and contrary to what Jesus was preaching and teaching. The retaliation we see was motivated by a sense of self-righteousness. They believed they were defending Jesus and his honour, but their response revealed a lack of comprehension about the true nature of Jesus' mission. The disciples were actually self-serving. Now, they did mention Elijah's name, and if we read Second Kings chapter 1, we'll, we'll read of the account of Elijah calling fire down from heaven. But Elijah's role is different. His role is a prophet of God, conveying a specific message to a specific king who had turned to false gods. 
to heal his illness. But here we see that the the disciples merely have a misguided sense of self-righteousness and zeal. In Genesis 18, Abraham interceded on behalf of the righteous people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleaded with God, asking if he would spare the cities if a certain number of righteous people were found. Abraham, a man of faith, had a desire to save lives rather than seeking destruction. In Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah reluctantly delivered God's message of judgment to the wicked city of Nineveh, the people responded with repentance and fasting. Here, God saw their genuine repentance and withheld his judgment, mercifully sparing the city. In this account, God demonstrated his desire to see lives transformed and saved rather than destroyed. Remember the disciple Peter's zeal when he cut off the soldier's ear while trying to defend Jesus during his arrest in the garden? Peter's mistaken zeal led to a hasty and violent retaliation that Jesus rebuked. This demonstrates the need for tempering our zeal with wisdom and discernment. Here in this account, the disciples demonstrated their desire for earthly glory. Yes, they were seeking to defend the honour of Jesus, but they missed the point completely. Their perspective was limited to the present. Their mistaken zeal serves as a warning for us. It reminds us to humbly examine our motives and our actions ensuring that we do not judge others or retaliate out of a sense of self-righteousness. Instead, we should approach others with grace, mercy, and a desire to be like Christ. Perhaps the disciples saw the determination on Jesus' face as he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. But Jesus loved the Samaritans and wanted them to repent from their sin and be saved. Even Jesus' journey towards the cross and the resurrection and the ascension beyond was a demonstration of God's love, not God's anger. Jesus taught his disciples that they were not to lord their authority over others, but to serve them. Matthew twenty twenty-five to 28. By showing grace and mercy instead of misguided zeal or retaliation, We reflect the humility, selflessness, and love that characterize God's kingdom. This is what Jesus was preaching and living. Brethren, it is vital that we trust in God's ability and sovereignty to bring about justice and righteousness. When we choose to respond with grace and mercy instead of retaliation because of mistaken zeal, we demonstrate our trust in God's wisdom and God's timing. We must learn to relinquish, lay down our desire for validation, success, recognition, pride. These things must not cloud our perspective. Brethren, do you believe that God is ultimately in control and will bring about justice according to his perfect plan? The response of the disciples in verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, 
you don't understand truly in yourselves. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What a powerful response. The disciples were rebuked. Why? Because they didn't understand Jesus' mission. This was evidence. Jesus came to save sinners, not to burn them up with fire from heaven. And they were not representing their loving and gracious master. Following Jesus means to be merciful to others. Through Jesus' response, he was teaching them a vital lesson about his mission and the kingdom of God. He reminded them he came to save lives, not to destroy them. Beyond the specific situation here, the desire for retaliation shown by James and John teaches us what not to do, what not to think, and what not to say. Perhaps if you have a pen, it's a good idea to write some of these impacts down. Firstly, when we engage in self-righteousness, we often become blind to our own faults. It becomes difficult to see our own faults when we are too focused on finding faults in others. Matthew 7, 3-5 says, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Secondly, an attitude of self-righteousness also escalates conflict rather than resolves it. Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And Romans 12.21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Thirdly, an attitude of self-righteousness divides rather than reconciles. When we prioritize our own sense of superiority and judgment over understanding, grace and compassion, we push people away and create barriers that hinder reconciliation and unity. Ephesians 4:31 to 32 exhorts us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another tender-hearted forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you It's also a missed opportunity for growth James 1:19 to 20 tells us to be swift to hear slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And finally, it will have an impact on witnessing for Jesus Christ. As Christians, our actions and attitudes have an impact on how others perceive the gospel. When we succumb to self-righteousness, we tarnish our testimony and hinder the gospel from going forth. John thirteen thirty-five. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And we're going to see how these points that I've just mentioned can be applied. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And this is a parable of the Pharisee and the publican. First, the Pharisee, in saying that he was thankful, he wasn't like the unjust publican. 
You see that in verse 11. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. The Pharisee demonstrated blindness to his own faults. He also escalated conflict. His words of self-praise and condemnation of others created an environment of superiority. His attitude divided rather than united, hindering any potential for reconciliation. The Pharisee also missed the opportunity for growth. His preoccupation with his own righteousness prevented him from recognising his need for grace. In contrast, the publican's humility allowed him to acknowledge his own sins and seek repentance, doing it God's way. Finally, Jesus concluded the parable in saying that he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The humble, repentant publican demonstrated a testimony and witness that was God-glorifying. Back in our passage in Luke 9, Jesus redirected the disciples' focus, showing them a different way. Jesus understood the temporary nature of earthly glory and had an unwavering focus on the glory of heaven and eternity. Jesus came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Titus 2, 11-14 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Iniquity, sin, is a universal struggle that affects every single person, regardless of race or background. Yes, it is crucial for us to recognise that sin cannot be ignored. Our faith calls us to confront sin, seeking repentance and forgiveness through the grace of God. Even amidst this tension in the Samaritan village, Jesus would not have turned a blind eye to sin. He confronted sin throughout his earthly ministry with love and with truth. Extending love and truth does not mean condoning or ignoring sin. Rather, it calls us to address sin with humility, compassion, and the transformative power of the gospel. This, dear brethren, is God's way. This is God's way despite rejection. Rejection was not limited to just the Samaritans and the Jews. It can happen on the streets outside this very building. It can happen in your workplace, at your school, out at the shops. If you're a Christian and belong to the Lord's army, you will face such rejection. God's way is to approach others with a heart of compassion, seeking opportunities for reconciliation. Banish those thoughts of retaliation. We've seen its potential to cripple our faith and growth, not to mention the impact it can have on others. Do you remember the story of Jim Elliot? He was an American missionary who, along with his colleagues, sought to bring the gospel to the indigenous people of Ecuador. Despite rejection, 
Jim and his team continued to build relationships with the locals, demonstrating love and humility. They aligned their perspective with that of Jesus Christ's mission. Yes, Jim Elliot was tragically martyred in his mission, but he and his colleagues died carrying out Jesus' great commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Jim Elliot and his fellow missionaries demonstrated sacrificial love, unwavering commitment to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the face of danger. They didn't retaliate in anger, nor did they pack their bags and call it a day. Doing things God's way means to intentionally follow his command to love and show mercy to others. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, pray for those who despitefully use us. Matthew 5.44 As Christians, we are called to extend grace and forgiveness even when faced with rejection. And we must reflect God's character in our own lives. We must first have faith that God's ways are higher and better than our own. Jesus' mission of mercy is higher and better than our own ways. In my line of work, we sometimes specify glass types for buildings. Glass has different properties. Glass can admit sunlight, both the light and the heat that the sun transmits. But more often than not, we want to minimise the heat coming in and maximise the light coming in. Likewise, God's mercy is like the heat being blocked by the glass. It's withheld. And God's grace is like the light that is sent flooding in through the glass. Brethren, I hope that we may truly understand Jesus' mission of mercy, its nature, that eternal and victorious perspective, and its purpose not to destroy sinners, but mercifully to bear the penalty for sin and graciously to offer full salvation in its place. I'd like to read the last verse of this chapter, Luke 9.62. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This was reply, replying to someone who had said, Let me follow you, Jesus, but let me first go and bid my family farewell. In those days, when a farmer was ploughing a field, he kept the rows straight by focusing on an object in front, for example, a tree. If the farmer started to plough and kept looking back, he would never make straight rows. And do you know something else? Ploughmen do something else in addition to looking ahead. They hold on to the plough. Pastor and preacher George Morrison once said this, Something more than receiving is required to reach the crown. To hold on when the sunshine vanishes and there is nothing but clouds in the sky. More than anyone else, Jesus lived this. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus died a cruel death on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead after three days. And Jesus did this not to destroy men's lives, but, dear brethren, Jesus did this to save sinners. How often do we find ourselves 
perhaps reacting to a way contrary to Jesus' character and mission when met with rejection or scorn or persecution for our faith. When someone belittles our Christian values, mocks our devotion, or rejects the message of the gospel, our initial instinct may be to retaliate or respond with anger or judgment. Yet Jesus responded differently. Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. The gospel challenges us to respond to rejection with a spirit of mercy and grace. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, understood that the true power of the gospel lay not in destruction or retaliation, but in transformation and redemption. It is in loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, showing kindness when faced with hostility. May we be a people that embraces the transformative power of the gospel. May we rise above our natural inclinations and become true ambassadors of Christ in a broken world. Let's go forth tonight ready to respond, ready to hold on to the plough, ready to be consistent with Jesus' mission of mercy. In and through God's way, I pray that we will. Amen.